0: Isaiah 42 is a couple chapters into a huge transition in this book. 39 chapters goes along and you hear over and over again of God bringing something awful upon His people as they have sinned and turned away from Him. He is bringing His wrath. They are headed towards exile. They are headed towards the the wages of their sin, so to speak. And then everything switches in chapter 40. You look at the beginning of chapter 40 and and God calls for his prophet to bring comfort to his people. For he is going to do a marvelous work among his people. And as he goes on and he explains that, when we arrive in chapter 42, he starts to personify what that victory is going to be. He personifies it in the presentation of the servant of the Lord. This is the first of four servant songs that we see in this book, in 42, and then in 49, 50, and then a famous one in in 53 that we all know and love. But this is where it starts. This is the first servant song that we see. And what we see is a victory over all enemies over the ultimate enemy, death itself. And victory is, a, is an interesting thing because we live in a world that proclaims victory all the time. Victory is seen in, in sporting events, people jumping up, up and down in the, on the field with exuberance, excited over the winning score. And, and we, and we watch that and we get excited about that and, and we watch it on TV and we watch our kids play sports and, and we just get lifted up in our souls as we watch victory happen, especially when it's on our side. And we hear of it over and over again. We, we think of national victory. The wars that this nation has been involved in to secure freedom for us and freedom worldwide. And we rejoice in it, rightly so. We think of political victories, especially in the climate that we're in right now. People walking around and, you know, claiming victory in the primaries, claiming future victory in the future election, and, and they get excited about it because as, as they secure victory, they feel secure inside of themselves. So they pronounce it over and over again. Right now, in, in the culture that we live in, you hear this over and over again about the liberal victory in the cultural war. That there's been a shift in our nation from one type of mindset to a completely different type of mindset. And the victory is being proclaimed over and over again. And in a sense, we can see it around us. As the arguments over who can use what bathroom, and who can get married, and who cannot get married. There's there's a victory that's being proclaimed over and over and over again. And these are the victories that humanity wants us to focus our attention on. That's why we read about it so much on the internet and in newspapers, if anybody reads newspapers anymore. You watch it on TV, you see them proclaiming victory over and over and over again. And and if you're on the other side of that victory, it can be disconcerting. It can make you feel uneasy in ways. Yet, as we see through Scripture, victories that are man-centered, that are man-made, they are delusions. They're delusions based in, on, upon false powers, and they are impotent. They carry no eternal weight with them. In fact, as we're moving into Isaiah 42, uh, in Isaiah 41, the prophet is talking about the, the, the world trying to save itself and secure victory for itself. And Isaiah says at the end of the chapter in verse 41, he says, indeed they are all worthless, these false idols, these works of, Of man made victory. Their works are of nothing. The people are delusional if they think they can secure lasting victory in and of themselves. And we know this. Even the best victories are short lived. Last century, we had two wars that were the wars to end all wars. And now we sit here in 2016 knowing over and over again that is not the case. There's only one victory that secures ultimate victory. There's only one victory that is unlike all the rest, one that we can place our hope in eternally, one that will last now and forevermore. It is a victory whose benefits will never come to an end. It's a victory whose hope is everlasting. Something that we can place our eyes upon and say, this is a victory secured in the past that is coming in the future and that it will never wane in its effect upon our lives. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the hope that our God wants us to focus upon in our lives. He wants our eyes to go there when things look questionable, when things look confusing. He wants our focus to be upon his ultimate victory. You can look at a book like the book of Revelations and and look at it and be confused by all the different imagery and what's going on here and and how how should I construct this? and get confused by it, but never forget what that book is streaming over and over and over and over again. The servant of God, Jesus Christ, wins. He wins. Your victory is secure. That's where God wants our focus to be. He brings the victory. He does it by the way of his servant, and it comes in shocking ways with outrageous results. And we're going to look at that this morning. First, let me just read to you Isaiah 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. There's a question that should naturally arise from this victorious proclamation here in one, And that is, just who is this servant? And, and it, is a, it is a solid question. It's a legitimate question. And to answer that question, to feel the full effect of what's happening here in Isaiah 42, we need to go back and look at other servants of God. We can look at Adam and ask, was Adam, the first man, was he a servant of God? Yes. The answer is obvious. God's creation in the earth, it was, it's God's temple. He made it as a place in which he would dwell. And his glory would descend and his presence would reside in this picture of a temple. And Adam was God's servant placed in the midst of God's temple to be like, to be like a priest. To say, I am A picture of God. I bear his image and I am his servant. But there must be more than that, right? Because he did not not represent God perfectly. He fell into sin. He brought sin into this world. And we look at that and we're like, yeah, a servant, but not the servant. You look at men in the past like Moses and Joshua. And ask, are these servants of God? Are these the servant of God? And in one sense, yes. Here are men that that were anointed by God to, to bring God's people out of slavery and draw them into the promised land where there was to be unity and peace among God's people. God used them as a servant Yet, but there must be more. There must be more that that, that God's people could look to as the servant of God because they didn't do it perfectly. Moses didn't enter into the promised land because of his misrepresentation of God. Joshua didn't conquer all the enemies. He didn't bring complete unity and complete peace among God's people because the enemy remained in the land. Servants, yes, but there must be more. The nation of Israel itself, is this the servant of God? Yes, Isaiah 41 tells us. It gives, it gives Israel the title servant of God. They were to be the representative of God, a holy distinct nation that says to the rest of the world, if you want to see what God looks like in his justice, in his righteousness, in his care, in his compassion, look upon us. Yet they weren't complete. They sin. They turn to other gods. They fell short on a regular basis. From their inception, they fell short in sin and they just continued to fall short in sin over and over and over again. A servant of God, yes, the servant of God, no, because there must be more. Cyrus, in Isaiah 45, is called a servant of God. He's going to be a man from a foreign land who's going to come and and bring the nation of Israel out of exile and restore them back to the home and be instrumental in the rebuilding of the temple. And in that, he is a servant of God. Just not the servant of God. Because there must be more. It it reminds me of, of being on a youth retreat when I was however age I was, 14, 15, 16 years old, and on the youth retreat, we were headed up to a campsite, and we had to hike to this campsite, and, and it was out in a more remote area, and we parked the cars, and we threw on our bags, and we started hiking back, and as our youth pastor is leading us down the way, we keep going around all the twists and turns, and 30 minutes... Turns into 45 minutes and turns into an hour and then two hours and we're stopping and everybody's starting to whine and, and, and I'm right there with them and it's like, dude, how much longer do we have to go? And, and the phrase that kept, came, kept keeping coming back to us was, okay, it's, it's just going to be around like this next turn. I'm certain around this next turn. And all of us are like, get excited and you get there and you come around the next turn. Oh. No, we're not there yet. Let's keep going. Another 20 minutes goes by. Okay, and around the next turn, here it is. Oh, you get a little excited. Oh, not yet. And as you keep going around turns and you keep getting these promises, the anticipation starts to wane because you just feel like this is never going to come. We're never going to stop. We're never, ever going to get to our final destination. And that's the feel here. There's a feel here for God's people. Is this the servant? Is he the one to come? Maybe, oh no, because there has to be something more. And now here God is proclaiming in Isaiah 42. I have a servant who's going to bring victory. He's going to bring you home. He's going to bring everlasting victory. And his servant is Jesus Christ. He's the one you place your hope in. He's the one that you rest upon. How do we know this is Jesus? Well, first and foremost, Scripture tells us very clearly in Matthew 12, if you look to Luke, if you look to Romans, these verses are cited specifically and directly attributes this text to Jesus Christ himself as the servant, the servant of God, the one you were to be looking forward to. Additionally to that, when you look at all the prophecies and promises found in the passage of the scripture, no one fulfills those prophecies like Jesus Christ himself. Nobody does. That's why even the Jews, as they looked at all these different servants of God and they wrote about them, even them, when the, the canon of Old Testament Scripture was closed, they themselves, as they looked at Scripture, they went, but there must be somebody more who is coming. And then you come to some place like 2 Corinthians 1.20, and Paul says, looking at Jesus Christ... All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. all the promises of God they're fulfilled in him. This is the servant of god it's like it's like Cinderella I, I use Cinderella because I have four daughters and i've seen it enough. It's like Cinderella when you get to the end of the movie and there's the glass slipper and they're going around and they're trying to fit it on all the women's feet and and nothing fits and nothing fits and nothing fits and finally, boom, it's just the perfect fit. That's Christ. When we look at this text, it is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. And when you look at it, when you look at Scripture confirming who the servant of God is, Jesus Christ, we must find comfort and rejoice in the victory that He brings. Because it is a radical victory. It cannot be fulfilled by anyone else, and it cannot be done in any other way but by Jesus Christ and in Him alone. It's a beautiful picture. It is a beautiful victory. As I said, it's a shocking victory. When, if we think of victory and it's left to our own man-centered imaginations, we might come up with a victory that looks completely different than God's victory. Something that is, looks awesome on the outside, but leaves us empty. I remember being a kid and, and learning about the gospel and, and hearing about Jesus' death on the cross and hearing about how they mocked Christ and he's hanging there on the cross and, and he's slowly dying and he's paying the penalty for our sin and blood is pouring out and, and the people are just railing on him, telling him, teasing him, man, you could save others, save yourself. You know, you've, you've, you've made others raised from the dead. Do something. Come down off the cross. And I remember being a kid and looking at that in my own man-centered imagination, thinking, wouldn't it just be awesome if right there Christ is hanging on the cross and just, boom, rips his arm, rips the other arm off, jumps down, laser beams fly from his eyes, and and fire comes raining down from heaven, and he just crushes everybody right there on the spot It just in my 12-year-old mind, thinking, oh, now that would be victory. Just give them what they deserve right there on the spot. That's the type of victory I'm looking for. Left to our own imaginations, that's what we would think victory would be. And yeah, it would make a great movie. But all of us sitting in this room would have the wrath of God hanging upon our heads with an eternity in hell as our only future if it was a man-made victory. Christ's victory was so much greater than that, so much more radical than that. It's a picture of radical grace. The The servant is victorious But he's victorious as we see. We're going to kind of bounce around here in 42. He's victorious through, he says in verse 7, opening the eyes of the blind and setting the prisoners free. It says in verse 7 that this is what God's going to do. He's called the servant to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is what, this is the victory that God's servant is going to bring. It's about this, this picture of Jubilee. If you know anything about the Jewish Jubilee, it was once every 49 years where the people would enter back into their homeland of their own tribes. All debt would be canceled if you had sold your land to secure yourself financially. Really, it was only like leasing that land. And at the end of. A seven, seven seven-year cycle, 49 years, that land would be restored back to you. The servants, the slaves in the land, the Hebrew slaves who had sold themselves into slavery, they'd be set free every 49 years. Freedom from debt, freedom from slavery. And they would enjoy that slavery, that, that freedom, like a reset button being hit. What was that a picture of? It was a picture of Christ's victory. Not just once every 49 years, an everlasting jubilee where the prisoners are set free, where the eyes of the blind are open not just for five years or 10 years or 25 years, but forevermore. This is the victory that Christ secures. The servant is victorious through true and lasting and complete divine justice. In verse 1, we read this, or we've already read this. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. In verse 4, he says, He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law. This is what the servant does. His victory doesn't just exact justice for some temporary satisfaction. His justice comes, and it comes in full completeness, without end. It goes to the very heart of the matter. It eradicates sins out of the hearts of God's people by taking the punishment of sin upon himself. And he makes those who have no justice just in him because he gives them his justice. He takes all of the sins of this world and he punishes them completely without fail and without end. This is the victory of God's servant. The servant is victorious, not just in some central locale, not just in California, not just in the United States, not just in some Western hemisphere. His victory covers the entire planet. In verse 6, we read, I, the Lord, have called you, my servant, in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light. To the Gentiles. He's already said his justice extends all the way to the coastlands, to the Gentiles. It will encompass everybody. His victory opens the eyes of the blind, it brings about divine justice, and it brings this to the entire world. The servant is victorious, and this is the part that we rejoice in that blows our mind because it's so counterintuitive. The servant is victorious not through crushing the weak, but by gently restoring those in need. This is the great contrast from what the world sees as victory. The world looks at victory as just destroying something and pushing it out away from you, getting rid of it, having nothing to do with it anymore. This is is a victory that says, here's the weak, they're falling down and they're falling short, put your foot on their throat and do away with them. Finish the job. This is how we see victory in sinful minds, yet Jesus Christ, he's the gentle warrior who overcomes the strong through his own meekness. In verse 3, he says, A bruised reed my servant will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. A reed, a thin reed sitting in a swampland that's bruised and it's hanging on by a thread, it's just barely hanging on. He's not just going to callously walk by it and knock it over. There's a f- smoking flax. It barely has any light and heat left in it. He's not just going to quench it. This gentle warrior comes and he sustains those in weak. He, he reignites the flame in those who feel like they're being quenched by the world around them. This is what his victory looks like. He comes in and he heals those who can't heal themselves. A beautiful picture of the victory of Jesus Christ. Finally, the servant's victory is absolutely guaranteed. And I already read this. He says in verse 4 He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He will not fail. This reminds me of John 6 that we went through quite a while ago now here in this pulpit. That the bread of life never fails. He brings life to those who he chooses and he brings it completely. To us it may look weak and and moldy and, and, and it may look like it's falling to pieces but to God he says that's That's mine. He's mine, and I will not fail. This is my victory, and I will make it complete. I will not come up short. I will secure all that I promise to do. What we see from all of this is that Jesus Christ's victory in this world is nothing like anything this world has ever known. This is the victory that the world is looking for, Jews experience it as they look forward in prophetic word to who will this servant be. But the whole world is doing this. Every non-believer you know is wandering around on this planet going, there must be more. That's why they write books about it. That's why they make movies about it. That's why they cry over their lives. There must be something more. And the servant of God is standing there saying, yes, there's a reason why you feel that way. Because I'm more. It's a victory that is mind-boggling for non-believers. Yet we also struggle with it, even as those who belong to Christ, those who are the children of God. We struggle with living in this truth when it seems as though we see so little of that victory. You look at things like addictions, either in our our own lives, in the lives that we loved, or just people that we come in contact with, and it's like, there's just, it just keeps coming. It keeps coming. Failure after failure after failure. Where is this victory that you have promised? We look at the lack of justice and righteousness in this world, and we wonder, where is the victory? I can't. I can't see it. I'm tempted to reach out and grab victory for myself and my own strength and make it be what I want it to be because I don't see it anyplace else. As our lives crush us over and over again, we struggle with understanding or or holding on to the vision of the victory that God's servant has procured. We struggle with it because although Christ's victory is already here for us through his death and resurrection. It's still yet to come. It's complete, but not complete. And we live in the middle of that every single day. And God is looking for a response to us, from us. He's asking, will you wait? Will you wait? Isaiah 40, again, a verse that we love 4031, it reads, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. That verse starts with waiting upon the Lord. And this is not sitting on your hands saying, Ah, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll just sit here and do nothing. I'll just let time go by, do nothing about anything. I'm just going to sit here because I'm just waiting on the Lord. This is an active waiting. This is a waiting that has a very specific characteristic infused into it. It's filled with trust. It's filled with hope. When the struggle comes and it keeps like a wave crashing upon you over and over again, will you wait? In our Wednesday morning staff devotion, Kevin made a comment. Pastor Kevin made a comment. Along these lines, where he was saying, "It's we have a tendency to think when we read things in Scripture, promises of Scripture, uh, uh, imperatives of Scripture, calling us to certain ways of life. We have a tendency to think, I read this and I know it, and therefore I live it. Just because I know it's true, therefore I live it as truth. And we don't. We struggle." And God here is saying, wait. I know things look uncertain. I know there's struggle. I know there is instability in your life. He says, wait. And that's the rub right there, isn't it? Will we wait? Will we trust? Will we be patient when all the world is screaming? when we pull our heart and our mind back together and focus on the servant and remind ourselves, he wins. And I will trust in him. I will trust in his victory. Even when his victory doesn't look like the type of victory I want to see. I want the victory to look like this and come in this little package and I can hold it and I know what it looks like and I know what it feels like and I can understand it from beginning to end when it doesn't come like that. God says, will you wait? Because my victory doesn't look like your victory. We see this. We see the servant's kingdom. He has a, he has a victory that is unique, is different We see that the servant's kingdom is a kingdom of glory. In verses eight and nine, we read of chapter 42. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. My kingdom is not going to look like your man-made images. It's going to be something greater. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He says here, the former things. The former things, in a prophetic sense, looking back through God's word and looking back at what he's going to do, these are the former things of the destruction of the northern kingdom that's going to come in in just about... 80 years after this writing, 100 years after this writing. And then the exile of the southern kingdom. They're taken off and carried off into Babylon for 70 years. Those are the former things. New things, God says, he's going to do. You're going to be, feel like you're lost in exile, but I'm going to, in part, I'm going to restore you back. I'm going to bring you back to that place because I still have a plan. I'm going to bring my servant And hope in him because he's going to do a new thing, the New Testament tells us. It's a new covenant that's going to bring forth a victory where my presence is going to reside in my people forever. I'm going to take out their hearts of stone and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh and they are going to serve me forevermore as I write my law upon their heart. This is the new thing God says he is going to do. And the certainty of this outcome results in glorious worldwide praise. And you got to love this in verse 10 as we move on. Sing to the Lord a new song. And his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. The inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He will bring victory. This is what he is saying in a glorious scene that reminds us all of Revelation 5 where the victory that he is securing, he's going to pull it out of uncertainty and instability and death is seeming to reign and Christ is going to come in and he's going to secure a victory that's going to last forever. And God says, focus your eyes on that and sing a new song of praise to me because I will do what I have promised to do. I will do it and I will not fail. Worship Him. Worship Him. Our, our highest moments in lives as believers are the times when we sit and we just simply worship our God. And here in this picture of the servant's kingdom, it's not just a couple hundred people sitting in a room. It's the entire planet singing together in one voice. That is... Can, just how do you wrap your brain around that? Maybe some of us in this room have experienced that in some way. I know I've had the joy of being in all different nations and different parts of this planet, and, and it is shocking to sit there in, in remote regions of Africa, and, and you're just sitting there next to this, This guy who's grown up in a completely different culture, completely different experience, and then the worship song comes, and and they're singing one language, but if you've ever done this, you start to hear the tune, and you're like, hey, I know this song. And you start to sing along, and here you are singing in English, and here they are singing in Swahili, and it's just, you're just blown away. We're praising God together in one, with one voice, in different languages. That is a foretaste of the victory of God. If anybody ever tells you the Christian religion divides and separates in hate... Remind them of what the Christian religion has done throughout this globe. It binds people together of all different cultures, all different socioeconomic statuses. It doesn't matter what your background is, what you've done, who you've been with, the horrible things that you've done. We embrace one another and we sing one song with one voice. And that is a picture of the victory of Jesus Christ. It's a foretaste of it because it has been secured, and it is glorious. This is God's plan; He has exacted it. He, you look at this in verse thirteen. This is an awesome picture. He's like, he's like a soldier hyping himself up to do battle. This is his own voice. He says, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his own zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. This is the zeal of God at work to bring about his glorious kingdom and how shocking it is for us as believers when we become indifferent about his kingdom. Or worse yet, our passion is focused solely upon our own kingdom. I have my own little world. I got my wife. I got my kids. I got my house. I got my job. This is my focus. It's upon my kingdom and what I'm trying to accomplish in my life. And we push God's kingdom to the outside. And God is saying, I stir up my own zeal like a man of war. I cry out, yeah, I shout aloud and I shall prevail. <sighs> Beloved, may we do that as a body of believers with the same zeal that God shows us here in this text. He says, I'm willing to send my own son to bring about a victory this world has never known to establish my kingdom, a worldwide everlasting kingdom. May we lay down our own kingdoms to exalt in his. Quickly, not only is it a kingdom of glory, it's also a kingdom of grace. It says this in verse 16, I will bring the blind by by a way they did not know, I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. Here we see the all-powerful, glorious servant creating a kingdom not only of glory but of grace through his service of the blind. It is terrifying to walk in darkness. We've all done it at one point or another in our lives where. You know, you kind of enter into a room and for some reason the contractor didn't put the light on the right side of the door and it's dark and you don't know the room very well and you've got to get to the other side of the room and hope there's this light switch over there and you're, you're fumbling around and you're like, Ugh. you know, it's like waking up in the middle of the night and you're trying to make it to the bathroom when it's dark in the room. You're just, it's scary. It, it, you never know what you're going to trip over. You never know what to expect Next. And this is what our lives look like apart from the grace of God at work in us. We're just fumbling around. We're trying to grab onto stuff. Is this safe? Is this thing going to hurt me? I don't know. I don't know if it's going to crush me or if it's going to sustain me. I have no idea. That was our experience in life before Christ came. And the servant opened the eyes of the blind and made darkness light before us, made the crooked places straight. These are the things that he does. He gives us eyes to see. He steals away the dangers. Now, life can still feel dangerous, but when our eyes are focused on the victory of the servant, the danger starts to be peeled back when our eyes are focused on him. And that is an important thing as we remember the victory that God provides for us. The servant leads, he protects, he provides for those who cannot do for themselves. And right now, this morning, we've, we've built all of that up to say something very simple at the end. Hear the servant's voice. Hear him. Hear him. He's laid down his life to bring about victory for us so that we do not need to be scared by the shadows that lurk in the corners of our lives. Focus on him and upon his victory, and his victory will be your comfort. Remember back to chapter 40, the beginning? Comfort. I said comfort my people. Hear the servant's voice and you will be encouraged. You will find comfort. And as you do, I encourage you to seek to reflect Jesus Christ's kingdom to the world around us. There isn't a single person that you know on this earth if they are outside of God's grace right now, his divine sovereign grace. There isn't a single person you know, no matter how arrogant and boastful they are, no matter how confident they appear, there isn't a person you know who isn't walking in darkness. And they may look like this, but they're walking around like this. They're terrified, terrified of what tomorrow holds. Be the voice of Christ hear his voice, and repeat his voice to the world around us. Reach out, not with mockery or prideful condemnation, but with grace, in the same way that Christ reached out to you. It was through his kindness that brought you to repentance. And I'm not saying we don't point out sin and we don't talk about sin, because we must do that. But I'm talking about doing it in a way of Not in a way of let's fight. I am going to tell you how it works and what it looks like. In a way of drawing people into the grace of God to say, I'm a sinner who was lost, who walked in darkness just like you, and I want the best for you. This is what you're looking for. You're looking for more, and He provides it. Look to Him. Look to Him. He's your only hope. He's the one who's given me hope. Reflect his kingdom through your life, through your words. Walk in the comfort of his victory. Share the grace that he has shared with you, and the world will change around you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, We hear these words. We hear your truth. And once again, we are humbled by it. We are humbled by the lengths that you have gone to allow us to walk in the light of Jesus Christ, your servant. Lord, we would have no hope apart from you and you have given us the hope of victory. You have comforted and soothed our souls with the victory of Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, and I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause each one of us in this room who belong to you to heed your voice, to hear it, to take it in, to not just hear it with our ears and know it with our minds, but believe it in our hearts so that our lives would change in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our insecurity, we would find comfort in the victory that you have purchased for us. In addition to that, Lord, I ask that if there is anyone in this room who is still wandering in darkness, looking for more, I ask, Father, that you would have mercy on them, open their ears so that they would hear your servant, that they would find salvation, that they would not spend another moment in darkness. Bring forth your light. Stir up life. Break the bonds of addiction and pain. And bring life. Bring freedom. Bring victory through Jesus Christ, your servant. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.